Yep. Okay. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, Tim to come up and read our scripture reading for this evening. So our scripture reading for tonight is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Now let's hear God's word. <clears throat> but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Let's go Lord Father God, we, again, we thank you for this time. We thank you for uh, all your many blessings in our lives, God. We thank you for... All right. Are we good, Nick? Cool. Um, so a couple things. Um, if you haven't been here, which I think most of you guys have been, but if you haven't been here, I'm usually not up here doing this. I'm usually up here singing music. Um, but Ash has graciously let some of us uh, start preaching sometimes. Um, but a quick thing, since I just can't let this music thing go, everyone pay attention to that song that Kyle played at Communion because I've been wanting to introduce it for like four months now and just have never done so. Uh, so he made it very easy for me, and I'm super thankful that he is uh, filling in so that I could focus on getting this done this week. Um, so yeah, uh, if, you, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we've been going through Second Thessalonians. I'm really thankful for Brandon's sermon last week, uh, mostly thankful that he chose that text. That way I didn't have to talk about the Antichrist and all that crazy stuff. Uh, but, but for real, I was, I was stoked about it. I, I thought he did a great job and I even texted someone in the middle of the service and said, wow, he's doing a really good job with this. So know that your sermon was an encouragement, even though it was kind of a grim, uh, 
topic to be talking about. And then I wasn't here the week Tanner taught, but I'm sure he did a great job. I was just out of town. Um, all right. So this is a sermon that has been uh, in the making for a long time for me. Uh, and what I mean by that is not that I have been writing it for a long time. In fact, I'm pretty vastly underprepared. Uh, I made a note in my manuscript that uh, at, the, at this point in the sermon, I was writing it Friday afternoon. So I was scrambling to get this thing done. Um, so I haven't spent nearly as much time as I wish I had. Uh, and yet there's this part of me that feels prepared. Um, so let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, part of it is that when I first started looking at this passage, I had no idea where to start. I've done a couple classes on like New Testament and hermeneutics, and at one point in time I could tell you something about Greek. That has all gone out the window, and I've forgotten all of it. But uh, usually I can find a nice little starting place, something to latch on to that uh, I can pull a sermon out of somewhere. But when you read through this, it's pretty straightforward. I read these I read these verses and I think, how am I supposed to spend 30, 40 minutes, however long, uh, if I'm Ash, maybe an hour and 20 minutes, I don't know, um, talking about these three verses. Uh, it's it's kind of a little jarring in a sense. If you've been with us these last couple of weeks, Paul quickly jumps from talking about the Antichrist and uh, what's going to happen and like all these apostates that are going to be there to discussing how secure we are in Christ. And it feels almost like going from dark to like super grace-filled and lighthearted. Uh, so there's a pretty dramatic shift in tone. Um, and so there I was, slammed at work on like Tuesday or something. It's our like busiest season. And it's like five or six days before I have to get up here and preach. And I have no idea where I'm going with it. Um, on top of that, I have all kinds of crazy other things going on because it's Christmas and things are busy. And it was in the middle of a very frustrating day at work whenever it hit me that, similar to this text, the entirety of the Christian life is a little jarring. Uh, it's full of these moments of kind of tonal shifts or changes of pace that we don't really see coming. And uh, we don't always sign up for the things that end up happening to us, much like the Thessalonian church. I can't speak for how your year has gone. Um, I know a lot of you well and like to think that most of your years have been pretty okay. But I spent the better half or the better first two-thirds of this year recovering from some pretty serious spiritual letdowns from people that I know. I had uh, some close personal friends or people who had once been kind of mentors in some capacity uh, disappoint me and uh, violate lots of trust and get into uh, things that would disqualify them from ministry, to put it short. And that's a hard thing. I wasn't sure how to react. It was a really marked shift from the way that my life in church had gone up until this point. Um, all of the problems that plague the church that I read about, that we've seen in headlines all year, those always felt like they were kind of out there, uh, not part of me. And then all of a sudden, within the span of two months, I had him, uh, I was sort of very deeply connected to people who they were affecting. And so I spent this whole year wigging myself out about what I should be doing next. And so in that sense, I feel pretty prepared for this sermon, um, because I think when you look at the context of where Paul has been talking to the Thessalonian church, they were wigging themselves out too. Um, theirs was a little different. If you don't remember, they were uh, becoming convinced or maybe were at least anxious enough about this that Paul thought he should write about it. Uh, he had thought they had thought that the uh, judgment day had already come, 
and that the Lord had come and that uh, the end of times were here and they had missed the boat. And so they were panicked about being deceived. In fact, I think there's good reason to feel like some of them probably were doubting their salvation at this point. And so like many of us do, the Thessalonians had begun to wig themselves out concerning the best next spiritual steps to take. They didn't cause these problems, per se, like like we don't. Usually it's the result of our circumstances. They were likely being led astray by false teachers who were sowing the seeds of mistruth in their hearts. But at the end of the day, they were the ones wigging themselves out a little. And far too often, so are we. So with that in mind, I'm going to reread the text um, and then start to actually get out of my introduction and get into the text a little bit. So. Paul says, but we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. So, like I mentioned before, change of pace, right? Uh, this section of Second Thessalonians kind of bookends the previous sections before he goes moving on to uh, instructions regarding idleness in chapter 3. Second Thessalonians is sort of a weird book, and this is why I didn't know how to approach this sermon, uh, because it doesn't really follow a super linear argument. Usually whenever we look at one of Paul's writings, there's a clear argument that he's trying to kind of build using logic or reason or, you know, typical like rhetorical devices and those sorts of things. Um, but here, he kind of takes a brief, almost emotional pause um, to try to reassure the Thessalonians, not using some sort of uh, deep argument, but rather just statement and let them respond to it and sort of sit in it for a second. Um, and so I found uh, in kind of digging deeper and reading it that this section serves sort of as a guidebook about what to do when you face insecurity I know that earlier this year, whenever I was facing all that stuff and confusion, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I thought I was responding to everything rightly and tried talking to people and still felt frustrated and still was freaking myself out. Um, And so this is sort of the sermon I wish I could have heard a year, two years ago. Um, So I think it's kind of a guidebook about... What to do when you wig yourself out, which is a very funny title for a sermon, and Ash made fun of me for it. But uh, know this. You may, be, you may not be thinking that the Antichrist is soon approaching, but you likely will face some spiritual challenge of some sort before you expect it. And we all need to be prepared for what to do whenever they come our way. So I'm, I'm going to go over the six steps or six things that Paul points us to uh, to look at whenever we begin to wig ourselves out. I'll go ahead and read through them. That way, if you're a note taker or that type of personality, you can write them all down and know how much paper you need to save. Um, so the first will be cling to the love of God. The second will be remember your election in Christ. The third will be pursue sanctification through the spirit. The fourth will be to plumb the depths of gospel truth. The fifth is to consider the security of your calling. And the sixth is wed yourself to the church. And I'll repeat those throughout the sermon, obviously. But those are the six things we're working with. So, cling to the love of God. Paul begins this section by saying, But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. He begins with a reassurance, reminding the Christians of Thessalonica that they are loved by the Lord. 
We're going to get into what this love specifically entails in a minute, but the short version is that he's talking about a specific love for, reserved for God's people, not this general way that God loves and cares for all of creation. Uh, the thing I think worth noting here is that Paul doesn't reassure them by mentioning their holiness or love for one another like he does in his letters to the Ephesians or the Colossians. Rather, he begins with mentioning their status. God has loved them. Though fellowship with God manifests its way through discipleships and growth in holiness, we are principally loved by God, and that's a status that we need to reassure ourselves of first and foremost before we start looking at those other things. So when we face trials of every kind, we don't need to first be told about the things we've done wrong, the ways we could have done better before, or the bright side of a situation. Instead, we need to be reminded of our identity. Our our identity as Christians is first and foremost found in how God has chosen to love us out of the grace and kindness of his heart. And if you are in Christ, the love of God has irrevocably changed you, and no circumstance can shake or change that. Paul begins showing the Thessalonian church that the best thing to do when you begin to wig yourself out is to remember your unshakable foundation as a child loved by God. Second, remember your election in Christ. So he goes on to say uh, that they ought to thank God always for these brothers and sisters loved by the Lord because from the beginning God had chosen them. Uh, So he's giving a reason as for why he is grateful for these Christians in Thessalonica. He's painting a picture of his admiration for the church and his gratefulness for those who don't give in to Satan's devices, including the Antichrist. Uh, More central to this turn of phrase, rather than just explaining why he's thankful for them, is Paul's reminder that the love God bestows upon us in salvation was not the result of a choice that we made, but rather the direct result of God's free gift laid out for us in eternity past. Now, election can be a bit of a scary topic for lots of people, and I get why. Uh, The doctrine of election is the place where we have to come to the end of ourselves and trust that God is actually in control of all of this stuff. Um, And that's pretty intimidating. Uh, We might feel comfortable saying that we trust God for our salvation, but do we feel entirely comfortable in saying he's responsible for it? Um, Because I know that it it makes a lot of us feel pretty uneasy. Uh, But for Paul, and I think for us today, the doctrine of election is the thing that the church needs to hear about in times of crises. Uh, In fact, he ends up littering both of his letters to the Thessalonians with several references to the doctrine. Now, I could spend the rest of the evening trying to convince you that it is or isn't what you think it is or that election, you know, everyone has spent time in, uh, not everyone, maybe just theology nerds like me and like Ash and Tanner. But uh, it's such a hot topic that we could spend the rest of the night debating it, talking about it. Um, There's more than enough books out there. So if you want those arguments, go buy those. I'm not going to do that right now. Um, What I want to do is hone in on the fact that twice in the Thessalonian letters, Paul uses this doctrine as a way to remind the saints of their perseverance and express the gratitude he has for them in light of it. So if we look in 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that phrase again, that he has chosen you, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us, 
and of the Lord when, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul says here that the perseverance and fruitfulness of the Thessalonians' faith is the reason he knows they have been chosen for salvation. The word because does a lot of heavy lifting. And the same thing happens in our text today. Paul uses this doctrine again in 2 Thessalonians to encourage his readers to hold fast and stand firm in gospel teaching. So, if you're not getting what I'm getting at here, Paul uses the same doctrine twice to the same group of people for the same circumstances that this doctrine will reassure you in times of being shaken. For Paul, the doctrine of election is formidable and foundational enough to help sustain us in our faith, particularly when we are shaken. The church at Thessalonica had once been a church of idol worshipers. Uh, We see that in the first chapter of uh, 1 Thessalonians. But God had changed their hearts and made them servants to him. And Paul thinks reminding them of God's primacy in this change of heart will help them stay afloat. So when you wig yourself out spiritually, remember that, remember that you did not choose to chain your heart. You could not regenerate yourself. But God did. And because of that, you can't change it back. <clears throat> you are being made new day by day, degree by degree, as one chosen for salvation by the God of the universe. So let the doctrine of election remind you that your identity is first and foremost found in how God sees you as chosen, beloved, and elected. But you're not just chosen as a uh, get-into-heaven-free ticket or anything like that. We are actually saved to something. And Paul continues on saying that uh, we have been saved or elected for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Uh, so the, this third uh, thing that you need to do when you wig yourself out is three and four are kind of combined. Pursue sanctification through the Spirit and plumb the depths of gospel truth. Because our understanding of gospel truth and our growth in sanctification are inextricably tied together. If we do one, we almost always will have to do the other in turn with it. Uh, If not, something will be off kilter. Teaching on this passage, English preacher Charles Spurgeon said the following. Have you grasped the full meaning of that word salvation, beloved? It does not merely mean salvation from hell, though that is included in it. But it means salvation from sin, salvation from the guilt and power of sin, salvation from your doubts, your fears, your troubles, salvation from that besetting infirmity of yours, salvation from the devil's dominion over you, salvation in its fullness from first to last. To all this, God has from the beginning chosen you who are brethren beloved of the Lord. Spurgeon understood how this election unto salvation through sanctification carried a specific connotation for those of us who face guilt, doubt, fear, and trouble. Those of us who wig ourselves out. And the deeper we dive into the gospel, the more capacity we have to face life's trials. They may not get easier and they may not go away, but we'll have the strength to persevere. Put another way, we will certainly grow in sanctification as we grow in the knowledge of truth. Which gives us good reason to study the Bible's teaching surrounding redemption and salvation. Because knowing God more deeply... Or sorry, to know the teaching of God more deeply is to know God more deeply. And to know God more deeply is to stop wigging ourselves out so much. So I pause for a brief shameless plug about these nice little seminars that we have coming up. If you want a nice way to uh, 
dig a little deeper into doctrine, um, that's a great opportunity. Just putting that in your brain for a second. Um, I do want to shift gears for a uh, little caveat that has helped me understand sanctification personally. Um, this gets a little like confusing, uh, but bear with me because I think it'll make a little more sense once you let me like finish everything I have to say. So um, there is always this aesthetic character when it comes to the nature of salvation. Think about it. Uh, God created a world and it's full of light and life. Um, and it was good. And then subsequently the darkness came and marred all of that. Um, and then Christ came sometime later as the light and life of men to push back all this darkness. Uh, he's the great undoer of the curse and he's returning things back to the way they were supposed to be. Um, and in that sense, uh, this Christian life, especially living in a fallen world, but knowing the truth, uh, we are kind of relearning how to taste and see that God is good again. Eugene Peterson calls it training in perception, acquiring a taste for what is being revealed in Jesus. And I think he really nails it. He goes on to say that our senses require healing and rehabilitation so that they are adequate for receiving and responding to visitations and appearances of spirit, God's Holy Spirit. These bodies of ours, with their five senses, are not impediments to a life of faith. Our sensuality is not a barrier to spirituality. It is our only access to it. Sanctification is just that, isn't it? It's the reclamation of our true senses. It's the gradual readjustment of our new selves to a world that we can now see as being renewed. In other words, sanctification is renewed attentiveness. Um, one of my favorite writers likens this um, to like Narnia in the Chronicles of Narnia series, um, in that the gospel... Uh, is a wardrobe that can contain a world. You just have to sort of have these lenses to see it rightly. So the deeper you go into the fundamentals of the gospel, the truer those fundamentals ring. We could live our whole lives within the words of Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you begin to wig yourself out spiritually, push into the gospel truths of this. Remember what you've been saved unto, not simply heaven, but the upheaval and undoing of sin itself. Of course, I uh, would be silly to neglect specifically applying this uh, verse to personal holiness and piety. Um, because victory over sin in the holistic sense, um, because Jesus has uh, defeated sin and death, um, we are actually enabled to wage war against our sins. Um, so we don't have to any longer be enslaved uh, to uh, whatever our particular vices or sins may be. Um, instead, we can break free from those cycles of sin and shame. We can forgive others and actually put to death our old ways. Sanctification is the relearning of how to use our senses again. So when you wig yourself out, remember that your election uh, unto salvation isn't just a convenience, and nor is your salvation just a thing that you'll one day be rewarded for. Uh, instead, remember that you've been saved to be further sanctified. In fact, Paul continues on to remind you that this calling is so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, which brings us to the fifth thing to remember when we wig ourselves out. He says that he has called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the security of your calling. There's a lot packed into this tiny verse if we were to try to parse out all of the doctrine that he hints towards. Um, and I think the big emphasis that he's trying to get at is the security of our calling. Uh, 
Brandon noted in his sermon a few interesting parallels um, that Paul had made in several different verses. And I think Paul might be drawing a parallel with verse 11 here. Uh, Whereas God sends a strong delusion to those who are perishing so that they might be condemned, he sends a gospel call to those who are being sanctified so that they might obtain the glory of the Lord. The stark contrast between those who are being saved and those who are perishing brings to light the inscrutable wisdom of God in his ordaining of all things, especially our salvation. When God speaks, things happen. And isn't that a reassurance that the God who elected you makes things happen when he speaks? Um, I think throughout all of the Bible, and this is getting kind of back at that aesthetic sense that I was talking about, um, God spoke and there was creation. God spoke and there's a pillar of fire. And God spoke and... uh, Finally and fully, he spoke in his sons. We see that in his son. Uh, there's only one of them. Jeez, um, man. Just let me get off this stage already, Ash. Uh, we see that in Hebrews 1, that God has fully and finally spoken in his son. Um, when God speaks, things happen. And God has called you to salvation. So it will surely come through in the end. God's faithfulness in his speaking and his following through lets us now see Paul's words in Philippians 1.6 through a different lens. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. The Thessalonians were worried that they had missed the day of Christ. Um, and it's kind of funny because reading these words all together, you can kind of think, well, had the good work that had begun in you been brought to completion? Because if not, it's probably not the day of Christ. Um, which is a good reminder for all of us, um, that we are actually going somewhere. Um, So rejoice in that. Rejoice that the God who elects you calls you, and the God who calls you saves you. And the God who saves you sanctifies you, and the God who sanctifies you keeps you, even until the end. And the God who keeps you will one day resurrect you so that he may glorify you. We are not sons and daughters of broken promises. We are sons and daughters of the king who kept the truest decree that there ever was. And if you're wigging yourself out, consider the security of this. Your life's actually going somewhere because God has ordained that. Don't fret about what may or may not happen. You're held secure by God, and he is faithful to his people. He will truly hold us fast. The final thing that Paul points to here is, uh, is the church. So it's, I, I phrased it as wed yourself to the church. Uh, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. If you think back to our Acts series, we talked about what it meant to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. We reached the conclusion that the apostles' teaching is the gospel truth that cannot and will not be changed. But I think Paul highlights an understanding of holding to traditions and confessions of the church that's missed in most of our American evangelical context. I, uh, I'll probably have to answer some questions about this story later, since my parents are in the room. Um, but a while back, I grabbed coffee with a girl, and it's, I'm not sure if it was a date. I don't think it was, based off the fact that we've had very little subsequent conversation. Um, however, uh, she's recently moved to the area, and she, we were talking about how she was having a hard time finding a church uh, in Knoxville. Um, and I was kind of waiting to see, you know, where's this going? Is she, like, psycho? Uh, obviously, I have a pretty strong, I have pretty strong opinions about church and stuff. So I was just seeing where this went. 
she uh, she told me one of the churches she visited, and, and I was a little familiar with it. And so I asked what she didn't like about it. And she said that she, quote, didn't like all the liturgy. And I said, oh, okay. And she said, also, they meet at night, um, <laughs> which is very funny uh, because this is the most liturgical church I've attended, and we obviously meet here at night. Um, and then she specifically mentioned that she didn't, like the corporate readings they did, which is funny because uh, reading the uh, Nicene Creed probably gets me more hype than anything else in the world. So when I asked why she didn't like this stuff uh, and then also told her that we did all of the things she hated, uh, she said that it just wasn't her style. Um, and at risk of sounding like really rude and pretentious, and obviously I didn't say this at the time, uh, Man, this is such a skewed way to view what we do whenever we gather together uh, that it, quote, couldn't be your style. The shape, content and order of our worship services matters. We have chosen to recite confessions of faith in our services for the same reason that they've been recited in churches around the world for the last two millennia. Confessions of faith and traditions of the church serve as guardrails to our doctrine, and we embrace them not because we see them as infallible or that they fit into the specific style or aesthetic of worship, but because they help us stay in tune with the rest of the church and remember what the apostles actually taught. The traditions taught in the historic church matter. Paul's command here helps us avoid clinging to cultural trends that might invade the church or superficial understandings of what the church's role or function is. In short, they actually help us live out the gospel in the context of a local church. And Paul's lens of choice is church tradition and confessed doctrine. It's fascinating, isn't it, the way that Paul places the commands to stand firm and to hold tightly to the traditions of the church right by one another. I can't tell you how countercultural active involvement in a local church is becoming. It's countercultural to be a member, to serve faithfully, or to even attend regularly. We live in a culture that encourages us to stop associating ourselves with institutions in the name of individualism. And funnily enough, individualism is the exact opposite of what Paul says sets us up for spiritual success. So for Paul, whether or not we are able to stand firm completely depends on how far down the rabbit hole of the church we go. We can't stand firm without the church. We can't stand firm if we abandon the historic teachings and confessions that Christians have held on to since the first days of the church. We can't stand firm on our own without a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Um, so I, I want to wrap this up just by offering a few words of encouragement and uh, commendation to you. First, uh, I, I can tell you that without Pleasant Grove and without Ash and without my small group and the friendships I have here that... Uh, I would have had a much more difficult time surviving the spiritual hardship of the last year or so. Um, so let that be of an encouragement to you um, that I love you guys deeply and personally um, and that uh, this trite, cold exterior uh, <laughs> has, has a heart. Um, to watch many of you grow in holiness and to grow in your desire to learn more about Scripture or church history, or theology, or whatever it may be, uh, just to hear you asking questions and growing in love for one another um, has been an encouragement and has helped me press on. And and with that, uh, especially looking towards the new year um, coming up, I want to encourage you to keep owning it. Um, as we roll out membership in the coming months, own it. Love one another. Bear each other's burdens. It's the most important thing that you can do. 
it's not a cultural trend or a fun thing. Um, going down this rabbit hole of church membership and loving each other uh, will actually help you grow in your faith. We can tell from the entirety of the Bible's teaching that what lies before us isn't necessarily easy. And like the Thessalonians, we will certainly wig ourselves out pretty frequently. It may not be about the second coming of Christ or whether we'd miss the boat, um, but we will need each other. We'll need each other to remember the gospel, to press further into it. Um, So I just want to leave you with kind of that encouragement. Um, And just I'm going to go through these six steps uh, one more time in case you missed any of them. I know that it got a little rambly. So uh, when you wig yourself out, just remember, cling to the love of God. Remember your election in Christ. Pursue sanctification through the Spirit. Plumb the depths of gospel truth. Consider the security of your calling and wed yourself to the church. I'm going to pray and then Kyle will come up and uh, lead us. Um, Dear God, I thank you um, that you have given us a gospel to gather around, uh, to talk about, um, to dive deep into. Um, I pray that as we uh, reflect on uh, the second and uh, coming of Christ this Advent, that uh, we would be able to refocus um, and prioritize you uh, and your church and your people. Um, and God, I pray that uh, whatever spiritual hardships, difficulties, confusions may come our way, um, that most of all you would empower us and enable us to not wig ourselves out so much. Um, I pray that you will uh, hold true to your promises as you have always done um, and that you will hold us fast until Christ comes. It's in your name I pray. Amen.